Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this bonus TLS long read produced by Noah, News Over Audio. If you'd like to listen to more audio articles from the TLS, you can do so on the TLS website or the News Over Audio app. Narrated by Noah. Listen to more of the world's best journalism on the Noah app or at newsoveraudio.com. You're listening to the TLS. This is What's for Dinner? The Future of Farming in a Rapidly Warming World by Bill McKibben, from the issue of July the 29th, 2022. Bill McKibben is a professor at Middlebury College, Vermont. His latest book, titled The Flag, the Cross and the Station Wagon, a greying American looks back at his suburban boyhood and wonders what the hell happened, was published in 2022. The United Kingdom is not a particularly important farming nation, at least in terms of output. The most recent tally I could find of how much agriculture contributes to its economy placed it 31st on the global list, directly between Tanzania and Peru, and trailing nations such as Colombia and Myanmar. This makes sense. The UK is small, at a relatively high latitude, and its soils tend towards chalk and clay. In the production of ideas and images about farming, however, the story is different. From Beatrix Potter to Sir Albert Howard – from enclosure to the Norfolk four-course crop rotation, from Jethro Tull's seed drill to the selective breeding undertaken by Robert Bakewell and Thomas Koch, Britain down to the present may have led the world. The three books under discussion here make it clear that Britain is not likely to surrender that lead any time soon. One of these volumes, George Monbiot's, is likely to become a classic. Another, Sarah Langford's, is powerfully evocative. The third, Philip Limbury's, is so poorly edited as to be nearly useless, except as an illustration of where mainstream thinking lies at the moment. Taken together, however, they represent a response to an agricultural world, and a world in general, in crisis. The most basic human question is, what's for dinner? Or, will there be dinner? 
In a year when the combination of war in Ukraine and the myriad droughts and floods that come with climate change have caused rapid food price inflation and threatened serious hunger, these books provide some useful answers, or at least suggestions for how to think about food and farming. Sarah Langford grew up in Hampshire, her extended family involved in farming. The affectionate and candid portrait of her uncle Charlie is one of the best parts of the book. He is 60 years old, the average age of a British farmer, and big in every sense – body, voice, opinions, heart. He is a UKIP-voting, BBC-loathing, Facebook-posting, Brexit-supporting, climate-change sceptic, in a checked shirt in Wellingtons. But Langford left the countryside, moved to London, and became a prominent lawyer. Her previous book was In Your Defence – Stories of Life and Law, published in 2018. Then, after a series of small disasters – her husband Ben lost his job, a warehouse fire claimed all their stuff – the family moved to Suffolk, where Ben had grown up. They rented a small cottage next to three pasture fields and three crop fields belonging to Ben's family. Up until this point, the land had been managed at one remove by owners rather than farmers. But now we're here, jobless, a little lost, a little bruised. So while we work things out, we will take on the running of this farm just for a few months. Their arrival coincides with what she calls the beginning of one of the greatest upheavals in farming for generations. Brexit means that the European subsidy scheme will wane, with something new replacing it, perhaps with more emphasis on preserving the countryside. But with memories of her grandfather, a farmer at a moment when they were heroes for feeding wartime Britain, she is curious about how conservation, economics and dinner might be made to work together. So even as she tells the story of the evolution of farming on the Suffolk acreage that she and her husband are managing, she also tours some of the nation's more innovative operations. She profiles Ollie, first names only, at least until the acknowledgements pages, who is doing regenerative agriculture and Tom, who is recovering heritage breeds, and Rebecca and Stuart, who are mob-grazing their sheep to improve the soil, and Sam and George, who have gone organic. Their experiments point in the same direction – the need to farm as if soil was the base of the enterprise, rather than a matrix for supporting the stems of plants, the use of livestock in this process, the economic importance of growing higher-quality value-added products. As profiles, they're charming. As case studies, for reasons we shall get to when tackling George Monbiot's book, they may be problematic. Never mind, Langford writes so movingly of the countryside and its effect on her heart and her family that she makes a case almost without arguing for the importance of these landscapes, and by extension the economies that support them. At one point a barn owl sets up shop on their recovering farm. It works, I think. This, the animals grazing and bringing life with them, the long grasses at the field edges to hide voles and shrews for the owls to eat, the new hedgerows. It actually works, she writes. Philip Limbery's Sixty Harvests Left is a magnification of Langford's book, a celebration of what he sees as an emerging alternative agriculture based on many of the same tenets, intensive grazing, for instance. Previously the author of Farmageddon, The True Cost of Cheap Meat, published in 2014, and The Dead Zone, Where the Wild Things Were, published in 2017, each about the dangers of factory farming, Limbury covers some of the same ground here, but this time with more emphasis on what we might do next, 
given his belief, as the title indicates, that we have but a few scant years before we run out of the soil that has supported farming for so long. As the chief executive of Compassion in World Farming, he has doubtless accomplished wonderful things for beleaguered livestock. But it must be said that his compassion does not extend to his readers, who are treated to a book so disjointed, repetitive and meandering that it is hard to make much of it. There is, for example, an excursion into the ethics of maggot farming. In his words, when considering the welfare of insects, the key thing is that we keep them in a way that allows them to fulfil their natural behaviours, however repulsive we might find them. When he wants to assess the potential value of mycoproteins such as corn, he asks the cab driver taking him to meet the CEO. It's a good idea, he said. It can feed the world, can't it? Limbury's basic points seem unimpeachable. Factory farming is incredibly cruel to the animals involved and highly unsustainable. Spain's porkers, which are nearly as numerous as its people, produce enough manure annually to fill the Barcelona football stadium 23 times over. China is pioneering multi-storey swine farms that can breed 2 million pigs per year. Italy may advertise its parmesan cheese with images of cows grazing peacefully in meadows, but almost all of them are confined to barns and shoveled feed. The meadows, meanwhile, have been given over to intensive cereal cropping, with the result that much of the local wildlife is dead. His prescription to remedy much of this aligns with Langford's account of what her most advanced farmers are up to, taking animals out of barns and putting them in fields where they will churn up the soil, making it more arable and productive. Intensification and specialisation are the enemies, to be replaced with mixed farming, where livestock has the right to roam and in the process improve the otherwise depleting soils. Limbury's iconic farm is in Bluffton, Georgia, White Oak Pastures, where high-welfare carbon-neutral beef is the result of this recipe. Professor Will Harris grazes sheep as well, and turns out chickens to eat insects and apparently to be eaten by the fast-growing local population of raptors. My bald eagle population has exploded, he explains to Limbury, adding that he sees his pasture-raised chicken as supplementary food for the flock. Fewer animals, reared in ways that restore our contract with the land and bring back wildlife, hold the key to true sustainability, the author insists. And he quotes his Georgia hero thus, The industrial system may feed more people in the short run, but in the longer view, I would argue that my system would feed more people. In the UK, Limbury's prime example of doing it right is the Nepper State in West Sussex, where proprietors Charlie Burrell and Isabella Tree have been kind enough to host me several times, he says. Limbury also bumps into them from time to time on the speaking circuit. They've created a famous woodland pasture that lets nature take over. In a decade, a crop monoculture has been replaced by a savanna of scrub, bushes, grasslands and coppices, roamed in turn by close equivalents to the aurochs, tarpons, bison and wild boars that had once walked the landscape. Longhorn cattle, red and fallow deer. A Tamworth sow with hair as coarse as a wirebrush, which had built a nest on the edge of a woodland. I watched from a respectful distance as she sat amongst her energetic and curious piglets. Their eyes sparkled and their trotters raced. I couldn't help but see the puppy in them. In the world of British alternative land use, I gather that burrell and tree have special stature. 
Langford recently tweeted a link to a Guardian profile of the pair and described them as the king and queen of rewilding, and went on to explain that they were now going in for regenerative farming. Normally, the author explains they're photographed caressing an old oak tree. But today, their backdrop is a mess of barbed wire, some old fence posts and a barn full of hay. It's not your typical bucolic scene, but removing obsolete tangles of wire and beefing up hedgerows is part of bringing nature back to this farm. They're investing £250,000 in their new farm, which will buy, among other things, cows, a cow brush to allow said cows to scratch themselves, and a caravan for interns. No word on an intern brush. Anyway, this is the point at which one is very glad for George Monbiot. He also counts Farmer Burrell and Farmer Tree as my friends, but he is too good a reporter merely to gush. Instead, he counts, if their farming system were to be rolled out across 10% of the UK's farmland, and if, as its champions propose, we obtained our meat this way, it would furnish each of the people of the United Kingdom with 420 grams per year, enough for around three meals. This means a 99.5% cut in our consumption. I don't mean three steaks, by the way, but three meals containing meat of any kind. We could eat a prime steak roughly once every three years. If all the farmland in the UK were to be managed this way, it would provide us with 75 kilocalories a day, one-thirtieth of our requirement in the form of meat and nothing else. Monbiot's complaint, to be clear, is not the lack of steak. He is a committed vegan. It is the lack of reality. In Regenesis, he is asking additional questions beyond how we make the landscape work better for animals. And perhaps for farmers, he is asking how to feed everyone without destroying our life support system. Food, while produced within environmental limits, must be healthy and affordable. He reviews the large store of folklore about the magical provision of food manna from heaven, the loaves and fishes, the magic porridge pot, and concludes that there are no miracles, just good or bad ideas, and the compromises they must make when they collide with material reality. At bottom, food has to be cheap enough to feed people in poverty, yet expensive enough to support those who grow it. It needs to be grown at low cost, but without the corner cutting that destroys the living world. This is a massive challenge set to become even more massive. One study Monbio cites shows that the total demand for new farmland, driven partly by human population growth, partly by biofuels, but mostly by the shift in diets toward meat and dairy, could amount to 10 million square kilometres by 2050. That is the area of Canada, which is to say the second biggest country on Earth. A child born now would be leaving university in about 2050. Even without a rapidly warming climate, it would be a trick. Which is why Monbio is the perfect person to tell this story. To begin with, he is a writer of the first rank. The opening chapter of the book is a peon to soil, told more gracefully and memorably than anyone before him. What Rachel Carson so gracefully did for The Unseen Ocean in her classic bestsellers of the 1950s, Monbio has begun to do for dirt. One hopes he continues but he is also a first-rate journalist, which is to say fine at conducting interviews and capable of dealing intelligently with big numbers, translating scientific concepts, distinguishing hype from substance and generally wrinkling out nonsense. 
In this case, his biggest point of disagreement is over cows, and whether or not they will do the kind of good that Langford and Limbury suppose. He goes to the source of much of the hoopla about mob grazing and its effects on soil, a kindly and venerable farmer who grew up in Rhodesia, Alan Savory, who has captivated a wide audience with TED Talks, documentary films and before and after pictures showing the effects of planned grazing or holistic management. Monbiot reads the scientific studies backing up Savory's ideas and finds them lacking. His three-page takedown of this work has maddened Savory's followers. One on Twitter has taken to calling him Monbidiot. But the evidence clearly shows that cows, as they are actually raised, are the biggest single source of what he calls agricultural sprawl, the ever-expanding reach of farmland into forest, often to grow the soya to feed cattle. I have come to see land use as the most important of all environmental questions, he writes. I now believe it is the issue that makes the greatest difference to whether terrestrial ecosystems and earth systems survive or perish. The more land we require, the less is available for other species and the habitats that they need. And the numbers he presents are stark. To raise 100 grams of soy protein, eaten by humans as tofu, requires just over 2 square metres of land. 100 grams of egg protein requires 6 square metres. Chicken protein needs 7 square metres and pork 10. Beef requires 164. Lamb, if you're wondering, is even worse, 185 square metres. The difference between beef and chicken, or pork in other words, is far, far greater than the difference between chicken and tofu. If you're worried about rainforests, go vegan or eat hot wings, but stay away from prime rib. Monbiot leads a number of other sacred cows to the slaughterhouse. Urban farming can't produce serious quantities of food. Vertical indoor farming is uneconomical in the extreme. The biochar, much beloved of many ecologists, is comically expensive. Horses are inefficient as draft animals, and so on. He usefully considers no-till farming and provides hopeful updates on the perennialization of annual crops being carried out at the Land Institute in Kansas and in Chinese rice fields. There is some good news contained in the numbers. Our habit of eating lots of red meat has created, in a way, a reserve of land. If things become very bad in the years ahead, switching to grains, beans and vegetables would free up a vast land base. If everyone got off meat and dairy, we would reduce the amount of land used for farming by 76%. But of course, that's easier said than done. I haven't cooked beef for decades and miss it not a bit but I also remember once sitting with an old man who had recently immigrated from a rural Chinese hamlet to a slum on the outskirts of Beijing. Why, I asked, had he made the trip? Oh, he said, with a toothless grin, in my village we had no alcohol and no meat. That is to say, if we are really to drive down the impact of livestock on the planet in short order, as the galloping climate and extinction crises seem to be demanding, Monbio thinks we may need a technological fix. His candidate? Precision microbial fermentation. His exploration of the technique begins in a lab in a Helsinki suburb where a scientist named Passy Weinecker makes him a pancake. Weinecker doesn't use conventional flour or eggs, however. He uses a soil bacterium called Cupriavidus nicator, which draws its energy from hydrogen. 
The view through the porthole in the fermentation tank, where Pass's view churned as if in a washing machine, was unpromising, a thin yellow sludge slapping against the glass. But when he extracted some of this primordial soup and piped it into a heated drum, it began to seem more appetising. It turned into a golden flower that smelt like scrambled egg. Monbiot asks the inventor to make him a pancake from the protein. It's a long time since I've eaten a conventional pancake made with eggs, Monbiot the vegan writes. The alternatives he had tried, gram flour substitutes, Korean versions made of corn flour, were never as satisfying as the pancakes I stopped eating when I switched to a plant-based diet. What was missing was the protein. It's what makes a pancake succulent. This one tasted rich and mellow and filling, just like the pancakes I used to eat. That's one small pancake for man, one giant flip for mankind, he writes. It represents, I believe, the beginning of the end of most agriculture. In the world that Monbiot imagines, we produce most of our protein from such tanks, where bacteria double every three hours, allowing you to harvest half of them eight times a day, every day of the year. They would replace the feed crops for the cows we're taking down rainforests to produce and the animals we graze across the rest of the landscape. Even compared with pure veganism, they're transformatively different. Compare, for instance, the most efficient protein production on Earth, American soybean farming. In a typical year, soybeans are planted on an area of the Great Plains larger than Italy. The land required to produce the same amount of protein by growing bacteria is 21,000 hectares, the size of the city of Cleveland, Ohio. In other words, you need 1,700 times less land to grow it. Even if you produced all the power for the process with solar panels on the same land, you'd need 30 to 60 times less land. This bacterial agriculture goes a long step beyond even plant-based meats, such as the Beyond Burger that have sprouted in recent years. It represents something fundamentally different. Something not evolutionary, but revolutionary. As revolutionary as the invention of agriculture all those millennia ago. Providing a lot of our protein this way would free huge chunks of land for, among other things, all the elegant and regenerative ways of farming described in each of these books. If much of our food was coming from an actual factory instead of a factory farm, we really could be managing some of the countryside like the Nepa state and returning some of it to indigenous communities and using some of it for solar panels. Instead of trying desperately to set aside some acreage to keep some semblance of Pleistocene flora and fauna hanging on through the climactic inferno, we could set aside big swathes to let evolution carry on. Imagine the buffalo again on the Great Plains. Monbiot looks for the flaw in his argument. Protein produced this way could well be less expensive than animal protein and can be made as easily in the poorest parts of the world, which are often protein-starved, as in the richest. In fact, the ability of equatorial regions to generate huge amounts of solar power cheaply may give them an edge. In any event, it would insulate poor nations from shocks such as the blockade of uranium grain. The price of electricity, and hence the resulting food, is fairly steady. Bacteria could be engineered to incorporate high levels of micronutrients to help address the deficiencies affecting 2 billion people. He imagines creating foods tailored to both our appetites and our health, 
with textures and tastes we've never encountered before. I can picture inventive chefs working with scientists to create, for example, a morsel that tastes like seared steak but with the texture of scallops. Or they might develop a mousse that breaks on the tongue like panna cotta but has the flavour of hamon iberico. Monbiot's prose makes it abundantly clear that at least some vegans are only pretending when they insist they don't miss the taste of flesh. If all this sounds icky to you, bacteria as food, remind yourself how icky our current system is. We raise 66 billion chickens a year, eight for every human, almost all of them in terrible conditions. And for what? Mostly industrial chicken meat so bland that it scarcely seems like meat at all. A generic white protein to which flavourings, crusts or sauces can be added to create an endless array of fast foods, ready meals, stews, curries and stir-fries. Monbio predicts that people will adapt themselves easily to the new sources of protein. As farm-free products become cheaper, better and healthier than the foods with which they compete, the existence of good alternatives will sharpen our growing disquiet with the treatment of livestock the destruction of our life support systems and the pandemics caused by animal farming. It's when something becomes amendable that it becomes intolerable, and only then. Monbiot thinks this revolution will come fast, though he understands the opposition. Huge food companies that are the agricultural equivalent of Exxon or BP, and are already using their control of political systems to prevent, say, plant-based foods from describing their products as burger or sausage. Millions upon millions of farmers whose livelihoods are at risk. He recommends that we begin working now on a just transition for such workers, instead of leaving it to the end, as has happened with coal miners around the planet. There's money for such transitions. We pay endless sums in farm subsidies. And around Britain anyway, he finds that rewilding projects employ far more people than the livestock farming they replace, in part because of the small businesses that have proliferated to serve the people coming to watch the abundant wildlife now living there. George Monbiot's book is the first word, not the last, on what would be a transition far larger than, say, the advent of the internet. We can now contemplate the end of most farming, the most destructive force ever to have been unleashed by humans, he writes. It comes in the same few years that the rapid fall in the price of renewable energy has allowed us to imagine the end of large-scale combustion on our planet. Both transitions would be easiest to absorb if they came slowly, but speed may be the one thing our moment requires. You've been listening to the TLS. That was What's for Dinner? The Future of Farming in a Rapidly Warming World by Bill McKibben from the issue of July the 29th, 2022. It was read by Les Smith for Noah.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.